This episode is brought to you by Direct Drilling, a locally owned family drilling company based in Kununurra, servicing the Kimberley and Northern Territory. All drillers are nationally licensed with the Australian Drilling Industry Association, ensuring best practice, the protection of water resources and guaranteeing the life of the bore. Find out more at directdrill.com.au. Central Station Podcast, where we bring you stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one, as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. James Christian's childhood couldn't have been further from that of his cousin, Sam. While Sam was growing up on a cattle station in Central Australia, mustering cattle, James lived 2,000 kilometres away on the beaches of Sydney, preparing to compete in the Sydney to Hobart sailing race. However, as fate would have it, a spur-of-the-moment trip to visit the rallies in the bush would seal James's fate, and he hasn't been able to leave since cementing his commitment to the industry by purchasing his own mob of cattle in partnership with his cousin. James always brings a unique perspective to discussions about rural Australia and the cattle industry, so I hope you enjoy hearing his story and point of view. James, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Steph. Good to be here. It's uh, not that early in the morning, but by, well, not by station standards, but by town standards, it's pretty early. Yeah, I'm pretty sure everyone else is still in bed. Yeah, I just thought I'd give you, you know, a, a flashback of what life used to be like when you're out in the station. <laughs> How can I ever think? Waking up in the dark. So to get started, I want to ask you, what are you watching, reading or listening to at the moment? I listen regularly to Roy and HG uh, on the ABC where they talk about sport, politics, MasterChef, horse racing, and they're very, very funny people. Are they? I feel... They used to do stuff with the Olympics, didn't they? Like commentate. That's right. Uh, they had an Olympic podcast running throughout the throughout the duration of the games, but they also have a, a weekly podcast where they discuss all the sporting action. Too much sport is never enough. I'll be honest, I kind of forgot they existed and it wouldn't have been since maybe like the 2012 Olympics because they used to be like on the TV that that's probably the last time I saw them. So thanks for reminding me that they still exist. It's my pleasure. <laughs> All right. So today we're sitting in Alice Springs, which is a world away from where you grew up in Sydney. I want to figure out how you, I actually don't know your story. So how did you come to be out here? I came once upon a time to visit my aunt and uncle who had a cattle station. And uh, yeah, I came up for a two week holiday to get in the road and eat all the food and uh, just be genuinely irritating. (laughs) Just the, just the next city slicker to come for a holiday and loved it. I thought it was fantastic out here. And when I moved back to Sydney, I thought 
I've got to get back out to Alice. And eventually I took six months leave. Uh, that was in 2006. And in 2007, in July 2007, I took 12 months off work in Sydney. And for three of those months, I came back out here to Alice to work on the station as a paid employee this time, not as someone getting in the way. Um, well, that's debatable. You probably yeah. still did get in the way. They were just probably, paying you to get in the yeah, way. got in the way for two months and 30 days. And just as I was hopefully becoming useful, went back to Sydney. Then I stuck around in Sydney again for another 18 months and tried to find another way to, to get back out here. Then took another six months off work in Sydney to come out here again for six months and um, did my best to not get lost uh, or break anything in those six months. And yeah, it was wild. I just, I really liked the outdoor nature of the work, the self-reliance that you have to build or that the, the business had to build within itself where people have to learn how to maintain their equipment or do jobs because trades can't just come on out to a station. It's too far. It costs too much in travel. So you have to learn how to do plumbing or sparks or building or whatever the case may be. Um, then anyway, while I was out there on that six-month sort of placement, shall we call it, I got yarning to a fellow who was living out at the station, Tim Driver, who eventually offered me a job to move back in 2012, and I did, and I've been here ever since. So did you grow up in Sydney, like the city of Sydney? Yeah, not far from Bondi. Really? Okay. And so, like, tell me about your childhood. Like, what what did that look like then? Oh, uh, pims and lemonade and lawn tennis. Really? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, anybody who knows James, like, that could kind of fit, though. <laughs> like, you're a little bit fancy. <laughs> well, um, I don't know how to take that. Uh, no, look, I, I grew up in the eastern suburbs. We, um, we didn't have a... You know, Nintendo or fancy overseas holidays or anything like that. We were always told to go outside and climb a tree or ride our bikes, and that suited me down to the ground. How old were you when you came out to the station for the first time? Uh, excluding when I came out as an infant or a ten-year-old, um, I was. It was two thousand and six, so twenty-one and a bit. Yeah. And what had you been doing since since you finished high school then? Like where were you at that point in your life? Uh, I finished high school and I was young for the year. I did a gap year to the UK where I worked at a, um, at a school shifting pianos and sports coach and sort of meal supervision, that sort of thing. Genuine dog's body. Uh, and travelled around the continent in the in the school holidays, then came back and went to university. And in my first week of uni, I picked up a job, um, it kind of as an office boy, licking stamps and doing filing. And as I got to the end of uni, I had sort of gone up a food chain a little bit in that office job, and. Part of the uni course was uh, was a, an honours an honours year, and I got 
three weeks and three days into doing honours when I told my supervisor that I, I couldn't make particular deadlines because of sporting commitments or work <laughs> commitments. And he told me I should reconsider doing honours and I reconsidered almost on the spot <laughs> and dropped out. What was yeah. the sport that you were playing? I was doing a lot of sailing. Oh. <laughs> a lot of rugby union refereeing. And um, that was a lot more fun than a clay mineral content analysis of the soils of Burke. Believe it or not. Yeah. <laughs> well, I yeah, I don't know. I suppose that's debatable coming back to your supervisor. Um, <laughs> so what, what did you study at uni? I studied an undergrad degree in, or well, it would have been environmental science had I received honours, but instead it was science brackets, earth and environmental. So that's not too far of a stretch from kind of the field you work in today or, or your shift into agriculture. Like they're kind of, you know, like sister industries or sister subjects, but you didn't have anything before that. You, you said you grew up in Eastern Sydney. How do you pick environmental science? I thought it might be the sort of degree that had me outside doing interesting things. I remember in the the first sort of get-to-know-us university lecture uh, in, in first year, everybody was assembled in the room and the, the various lecturers and professors and so on addressed us and they said, look, this is not a course for wannabe Ranger Stacys. Um, and, you know, a few people got up and walked out basically. But, uh, and I never really wanted to be Ranger Stacy. I just thought it could be an interesting way to be paid to be outside, possibly doing uh, water analysis or God knows what. Um, I found the degree to be more about paper pushing. And if I had my time again, I'd probably study something else. Uh, but, we had some really interesting lectures from some fascinating people and hopefully I remember everything that they taught me, um, even though I don't really want to be Ranger Stacy or a paper pusher. <laughs> the, the uni process was more about demonstrating that you can learn, I think. Um, and if you can demonstrate that you can learn while you spend lots of time skipping lectures to go for a surf or deciding it's easier to be hung over on the library lawn than it is hung over at a biological statistics lecture and you can sort of and you can still bounce through then good for you <laughs> <laughs> i've just made a note uh on my notepad here I wonder where else you'd make notes uh about ranger stacy and i think there's going to have to be some kind of photoshopping moment after this round is going to put your face on Ranger Stacey because that is the best visual and for everyone listening like guys just you think I'd look good with boobs yeah <laughs> and the little what is she like the little khaki like short yeah, shorts yeah, and, yeah. The, and, the, and the big blonde hair and oh it's going to happen James so what did you do between uni so were you out in the workforce before you came out to yeah that's right I was out in the workforce um I dropped out of dropped out of honours but the good thing was I'd already received my student ID for that year so I could get a discount on buses and trains in Sydney. And Priorities. That was, yeah, that, that was I, st I still try and use my university email <laughs> for certain things. Like, I'm not going to lie, I've got I've got a discounted, like, Photoshop subscription because I think I'm a student. <laughs> graduated years ago. Perfect. Your secret's out now. Yeah. Um, I just started working full-time um, 
where I was and that was handy. But what, like, what were you doing? Oh, Give I, me the details. Uh, it, it was sort of contract entry. It's sort of office admin sorts of things. All right. So you're bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, out of uni, but not quite. Well, you were out of it, but didn't. So technically, did you not graduate uni then? No, I graduated. Um, you didn't have to do – so the honours was I, like I didn't optional. have to do honours. Honours was what would have converted me to – Bachelor of Environmental Science as opposed to just Bachelor of Science. Oh, okay. And uh, so, yeah, I dropped out with my student card. Then what I did was re-enroll in honours, went down to the student office, got my next year's (laughs) student card for discount travel on buses and trains, and then went back to the enrolment office and unenrolled and declared I would like to graduate with my friends who were graduating with honours, and my plan worked. (laughs) I love, I'm like, guys, if there's anything you've learnt from this podcast episode, it is how to play the system and get discounted public transport, which, I mean, it is pretty pricey these days, so. It is. Yeah. um, No one should laugh at you for saving a dollar. (laughs) Yes. Well, and as we'll find out later on, you've saved some dollars and, and put it to good use, so. How did you decide to come out to Napaby and, you know, was it just like a cold call, like, hey, Auntie Janet, like, oh, absolutely. Me? Yeah, it was basically a cold call. I had a, a bloody interesting summer um, leading up to the February trip out to Napaby. I had just done my first Sydney to Hobart on a maxi. Um, that's, you know, one of the, one of the large yachts. And we, we did as well as we could. Um, there were a, a pile of youngsters on board um, doing our first ever race, which was made all the more exciting because we did it on a maxi. What, um, I've got, uh, what is a maxi? <laughs> a maxi is a boat that is you know, usually longer than about 70 feet. The maximum length is 100. Uh, we were on a 92-footer called AAPT, which in its previous life when it was called Nicorette had won the Hobart. So we, we youngsters were in with a chance by virtue of the bloke who chartered the yacht and trained us up, um, a man who's done a hell of a lot, I think, for Australian sailing and deserves more recognition than he's got. If, if anyone is a PR king, it is Sean Langman. The man's a genius. Uh, anyway, uh, we, we'd had a, had a blast on the yacht, did the Hobart, and then a few weeks later we went to Geelong to do the Geelong Sailing Week and got back to Sydney and thought, you know, what else can I do over summer? And rang up Janet to see if I could head out there for two weeks before going back to work. What or time of year was uni. this, if you're saying it was summer? February. I went to Napoli in February, Ooh. which uh, generally people would keep away because yeah, it's Yeah, it's a poor life up. choice, yeah. But it was heaps of fun, heaps and heaps. So tell me about coming to Napaby and your first experience out in a cattle station. Uh, it was wild. Uh, Janet drove me out there um, with a backpacker. She recruited a new backpacker to, to work in the garden and in the shop. And so we sped out to Napaby and I was blown away by the amount of space that's out there. Um, and the homestead, like most homesteads in the NT, had white buildings with white roofs, 
green lawns, um, but only so far, and then just red everywhere else. And yeah, I was, I was basically put in a car in the, in the, in the board checking Toyota for two weeks as the gate opener. Um, and drove around and looked at stuff and <laughs> every now and then got asked to, to do something to help. I had to, you know, drive this or drive that or push this around. You know, I was a, I, again, I was a dog's body, but that's okay. That's how you learn things. Um, once we, we were, we picked up a whole pile of stuff that was determined to be no good and it, you know, had to go to the tip. And there's a, a long, um, long body rigid truck with a flat deck on the back. And, um, I was told to drive it out to the tip and push everything off into the tip. So no worries. I did, but the truck had air brakes and I'd never driven a vehicle with air brakes before. And I remember putting my foot on the brake pedal and watching the air gauge move. I thought, Oh, you know, that's, that's clever. That's interesting. I wonder. I wonder how many times you can press the brake pedal and let it go before it runs out of air. <laughs> and I sat there for a few minutes just going, <laughs> and eventually the old bore runner came up to find out what I was doing and I'd run the truck out of air and you know, he started it again and I had to drive it back, but the, the, uh, the little horn was going to say, you know, out of air. Have you done that for? Just went out of his out of his tree at me. I was like, oh, I was just trying to see how long it would take to run out of air. <laughs> what a pointless exercise! But uh, I don't know. It was intellectually satisfying. <laughs> then I had to wait for it to build up again and drive it back to the workshop. <laughs> at least you. I guess you know that's a lesson in understanding how it works, though. Oh, like, for sure. Not just accepting sure. it at face value, but actually testing it out and. Yeah, and so look, that was that was my bit of fun. <laughs> and they actually let you come back as a paid employee. Was it the next year? Uh, yeah, eighteen months later or so. Um, Is that just enough time for them to forget? Yeah, for, forget all the things that I did wrong. Um, and yeah, the old ball runner was still there. He, I'm sure uh, he was thrilled to see you. Oh yeah, he was. He just told me not to drive the air brake vehicles. <laughs> No, I think he was happy enough to see me because I was only going to get half lost because I'd been there before. <laughs> Didn't stop me, though. <laughs> so 2006 was the first time you came out to a cattle station for two weeks and then it wasn't again until 2008. You came back to Napaby again, this time for three months. Three months, yep. And then 2010, so two years later, you came back for six months. Yes. So I'm seeing a bit of a pattern here. <laughs> it's like you're kind of dipping your toe like in the water. Yeah. It won't go away. Yeah. But you're just also like staying a little bit longer each time. So what, um, I remember 2010, there was a bit of a wet year there, wasn't it? It was. It was soaking wet. It feels like now in retrospect, it rained every second day. Um, geez, it was wet. There was one day where, um, one of my colleagues got a, Quad bike bogged. I got the Toyota bogged. The bulldozer driver got the bulldozer bogged. The, um, the manager got the prime mover bogged. 
and I just everything was stuck. God, it was miserable. And, and it was sort of windy at times as well. And when you come out to the bush, you don't, well, particularly the, the central desert where it's meant to be relatively dry, you don't bring a lot of wet weather gear with you. And I think I had one, one jacket that got wet through fairly early on. And then after that, it was next to useless. It had no waterproof properties whatsoever. So you'd, you'd go out with a spare shirt stuffed behind the back of the Toyota seat. And yeah, man, it was wet. Everything was wet. <laughs> it's just incredible. You've never seen anything like it. Um, of course, that was followed eventually by some years of fairly long dry. So you, did you, uh, you, did you, you appreciate it? Do you think while it was, did you realize what it was when you were there? Like how special a time that was? Because you hadn't been there. I know when you no, made it in 2008 was probably a bit dry. It was, but- it was dry, yep. Um, it was dry and, and things were relatively bad. And I know it's been much worse in the past. But, yeah, you're right, that was the comparison I had. Um, but with only such fleeting visits, it's hard to get a full appreciation for what it it really was that was going on. And so this is your third trip back to the Territory. And as we said before, each time you're staying a little bit longer. When was it that you actually came back and kind of really committed to being here? In or that, you know, you got the bug properly? <laughs> got the bug. I probably got the bug the first time, but you're right, it, it took successive build-ups. But in 2012, I moved out full-time and haven't looked back. And so... I suppose each time you've come back as well, were you being given more and more responsibility? Uh, as much as you can be, I suppose. Um, in When I moved back in 2012, I worked not for the station but for a bloke who lived at the station who had a um, sort of a symbiotic relationship with Roy and the deal was that Roy could use the equipment and the um, and the data being provided by Tim Driver and his company, Precision Pastoral, and Tim could use the cattle and the workshop. Oh, he's the fellow that does the walkover ways, isn't he? He's the fellow that yeah. does the walkover Yeah, so, okay, ways. so tell us about what he was doing and what you were doing with him. And what I guess for people listening, what is a walkover wayer or a wow? Or a wow. A wow. A, a remote wow. Uh, it is effectively... A walkover wire is a set of bathroom scales for cattle with an ear tag reader attached to it. So as they, as the animal walks across the platform, it is weighed and its tag is scanned and the information is sent to the cloud. And over time, you can build a graph of the animal's weight and you can see if it's growing or losing weight or plateauing. And then you can look at you can look at the weights individually or as a herd and you can figure out are the cattle doing well or are they doing badly. And they become environmental proxies, really, because they can tell you if the grass is losing its nutrition or if it's if it's losing its substance. And you can start making management changes based on what the cattle are telling you. You don't need them to speak English. You need them to speak numbers. 
And uh, the the WoW units also, I think there's some additions where you can like have drafting gates on them as well, so they can go through. And if they're of a certain weight, you can kind of send them one way. And that's right. Yeah, you, send can, them another. you can set parameters based on whatever tickles your fancy, and you tell the unit what it is that it needs to know. If you're drafting on, um, yeah, you, you give it a list of the ear tag numbers basically that you think need to be spat out, or as you say, a weight threshold. And it will draft off what you tell it to draft off with a very high degree of accuracy. I think one of my favorite applications of that is that you can, so say when you're supplementing cattle, obviously you would have got a, a, a range of cattle, like you just take up big mob of people and they have different needs and you know, everyone performs a little bit differently. So when you're supplementing cattle, some cattle probably need supplements more than others. Like right now, I don't know, I might need more of a vitamin C tablet than you or vice, you know, vice versa. And so, I mean, you don't want to, and, but even with, I guess with cattle, even if they don't need it, sometimes they'll still go on guts on supplement anyway. So I love that you can have cattle coming through and set your parameters so that only the cattle that need the supplement, so maybe under a certain weight and kind of getting able to access it with the other cattle, like you're like, uh-uh, you're doing just fine. Like keep walking, Betty. That's right. <laughs> keep walking. The, the fascinating thing with, a wow is that it will answer questions for you about your herd, but the more questions it answers, the more questions you can ask it. So you can look at your herd profile and it will tell you that you've got a certain percentage over a particular weight. Then you need to, you probably think to yourself, geez, I wonder why they are doing so much better or what's the difference between the males and the females in this paddock? And then you can interrogate the data and you can answer that question. And then you think, why? <laughs> and, I mean, you can go down rabbit warrens and, and develop highly sophisticated management tools. And when you start telling people about it, eventually they start tuning out because the, the questions and the answers and the management are probably too specific to their needs. Um, and, and not interest, not interesting to anybody else. But. Yeah. Well, and, and I suppose it can be quite overwhelming, but I think it's, yeah, it's still very handy for, say your agent comes and says, we need a line of 300 kilo steers and you kind of set your, your walkover wire, you know, within that next couple of days and maybe they'll all come over and go, Oh crap, my average weight is 250 or two or, or 280 or whatever. Or maybe it's 310 and you go, sweet. I might make, cause if you like, Oh, maybe they're only 270. It's not worth mustering them. Cause I know they're not going to, by the time I draft off what I need, I'm not going to have enough to make, to fill that road train. So there's so many applications. True. Yeah. Anyway, we'll have to get Tim. I know he's still around Alice, isn't he? He is. Yeah, I did run into him at a coffee shop once, so um, I didn't know who he was. So, Tim, if you're <laughs> listening, come on the podcast. All right, I suppose what I'd really like to talk to you about um, is your perspectives on the beef industry because we've had – you've written some very interesting stories for our website over the years. And some bad ones too. Yeah, well, <laughs> interesting could mean bad, you never know. Um, and, you know, as we've established, you came to this industry a little bit later at the at the – grand old old age of 21 um you you had a different upbringing you didn't grow up in the beef industry and (laughs) i don't say this in a bad way but like you just you kind of have a different perspective from a like you you, you're not your typical person (laughs) i don't know how to say that without but like no but like you always get a different you know (laughs) you run into everybody who knows james knows this you run into james and you get like a different perspective on things or a different you know it's just 
Like you're not your typical. I don't. Yeah, I'm. I'm just digging myself a hole here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I'm, I'm waiting for the final analysis. Yeah. Oh no. But are, so, are you thinking good things or bad? No, good, good. <laughs> so like we always have very interesting chats. Like it's just different, and sometimes yeah, you don't get to have these chats very. You know, it's hit and miss. Um. So, but from what I've picked up in your blogs and then just conversations, I'm just always very interested in how you. Uh, I suppose like analyze the beef industry and what you think of it and how it works. And I just like to get Jeez. some of your thoughts how on that. How long have you got? Well, we're 32 <laughs> minutes in, so I'll give you another 30 minutes and I've got your. <laughs> Jeez, I don't even know where to begin. Actually, yeah, I will only give you 30 minutes because I do have a vet appointment <laughs> for my dog in an hour. <laughs> Look, I think the beef industry is fascinating. Um, but it's, hard to unpack uh there's a lot of people in it for the lifestyle and what a wonderful lifestyle it is and there are some people in it for the business and what what a fantastic business it can be and there doesn't seem to be too many people operating in the middle um and i think that needs to change what do you mean by that you know to be more in the middle how what would that look like it will look more like people running a business with the lifestyle coming second. I think there are uh, quite a few ways in which business efficiencies can be improved and, uh, and animal grazing benefits can be enhanced. And it won't take a lot of management to make that happen. But in order for that management to change, there needs to be a better understanding of business fundamentals that is something um i saw i think we touched it in our other podcast the cattle station classroom uh when we did an episode with with ian mclean from bush agribusiness so he runs the business edge course uh which i think in it in and of itself is a very interesting like short course for people in the pastoral industry or in, in agriculture but um when you're, as, as you said much earlier on in this episode, when you're on a station, you have to be able to do so many things. You've got to be able to operate the machinery, fix the machinery, um, build infrastructure, maintain that work livestock kind of, you know, like we often hear, you know, like there's just so many hats. So you're a vet, a nutritionist, a welder, a, you know, a HR person, a tax, I don't know. You've got to be a bit of everything. And there's so many, courses that we kind of we tell people like go to uni go do ag science go do animal science come and do your nutrition edge course or your grazing for profit oh actually well I'll, that one is different because that one does include business but really business isn't something that is kind of yeah like you don't you could be um and i'm not i'm not saying that this is how everyone is but like say you come out of school you're a ringer you're really good with cattle you're a bit handy on a weld or whatever you work your way up but when do you actually when is the time where there's like the business background, I suppose? Like wh- when are you supposed to learn that? No, that's a, it's a fair question. Um, I did the business edge course a couple of weeks ago and it's excellent. Everyone listening should run out now and go and do it. It's cheap at twice the price. It really is. I, there's a, a few things to pick up on though. And that is that everybody in the bush thinks they're busy because, as you say, they wear many hats. But people in town are just as busy. People have families or uh, jobs. They all need to go shopping. 
they see their friends, they play sport. It's not that different to being at home, having to check the water tank, having to put fuel in the generator, etc. We can all fill our days doing things that we think are important. But there's also a time when you need to recognise that your time is worth money and it could be better spent doing something else. And whereas it's wonderful to have the skills and the expertise to operate all the machinery, uh, use all the equipment, do all your own building, there comes a point in time when you're probably better off getting an expert to come and do it. I know I said earlier that it's it's expensive to get tradies out to a station because they charge you to travel and they charge their hourly rate and all that sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, if you get someone who's an expert on a bulldozer, they're going to do a much better job dozing than you're going to do. And you can be back in the office making $100,000 decisions instead of skimping on paying someone a few hundred dollars an hour. Have you done the grazing for profit course? I'm not sure. (laughs) (laughs) It's like a five, five or seven day course. Surely you would remember. It's pretty life changing. No, I'm going to say you haven't, I haven't. because I've got if a you... master of business. Yeah, no, no, no. It's just the, the things you're saying. It sounds like you're like you've, you've gone through the grazing for profit course, which I've done as well. And I love it. I was like, if you don't know, then you definitely haven't done it because it's they're pretty life changing, and you wouldn't you would definitely remember it. But that's you know they talk about this idea of you you can work in the business or work on the business, mm. and so working in the business is like your jobs that are you know twenty dollars an hour, fifty dollars an hour, you know, and then working on the business is like your jobs that can be hundreds of dollars an hour, or thousands of dollars, like those are the big decisions so yeah do you want to be out building the fence or do you want to be doing some kind of strategy that you know is making a big decision about yeah which is which is basically kind of what you just alluded to absolutely um and of course there's there's nothing stopping you going out and doing your own fencing or showing that you can do it um leading from the front and and explaining to people why you need the wire tied off in a particular way it's that there's there's no problem with any of that, but there comes a point in time when you need to recognise where you sit in an organisation. And sometimes, if you are a station owner or a station manager, you really are the the king of quite a large business or queen of a very large business, and you need to be running the business, not running the fun. That must be, it would be a hard transition, I can imagine, especially if you've come up from like ringer level to be, have always been on the front line working, you know, doing the work and then, you know, but then you're rewarded for your skill or your commitment, your loyalty to, to progress up the chain. And then all of a sudden you find yourself like, again, in the, in the office and you're like, no, but this, so I guess something like, yeah, it, it's kind of one of those things where the more you progress, you kind of get away from what, well, for some people, I suppose you might get further and further away from doing what you actually love. Mm. But like, that's what progression means in a sense, I guess, in this industry. I suppose so. I wonder if it's the same in other industries though. Like if you're a hairdresser and you end up like, I always use the example of a hairdresser, but if you start off from apprentice and then you work your way up to owning the salon, you probably still get to go out and cut hair a bit. Hope, I would think, but maybe, maybe not. Who? <laughs> you know, the, the hairdressing chain? Oh, it's it probably Tony, Tony and Guy. Yeah, I thought it was Tony and Guy. I thought it was called Tony and Guy. Okay. 
Yeah, well, well, it's spelt G-U-Y, so I'm going to go with Guy. But Guy. Meanwhile, you have to cut out this last 10 minutes of the podcast because it sounds like I'm just a pontificating wanker. No, not at all. And I'm leaving this video. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that made me think that perhaps you'd done the Grazing for Profit course was something that, uh, like, you, you're kind of alluding to mindset here as well. Like, you know, we all have ways to fill up our day and, and it's about our priorities and whatnot. But so something that comes out of grace and for profit is the idea of paradigms and like shifting paradigms. So I just, I just often find your perspectives quite interesting because again, you've come into this later and you've got a different background and you've had a different experience than other people. Like, so you just like, it's just another perspective that. Everyone, James is just staring at me. <laughs> Was that a statement or a question? I don't know. I was just hoping you'd pick up and go on from here because it's not that early anymore, but I'm still no, half no. asleep. And Well, I'm, well, okay, I'm let's, glad that you like how I think. Let's talk about what you perceive to be the opportunities in this industry. Mm. The opportunities in the beef industry, I think, come from data. And analyzing the data and that doesn't have to be too nerdy, but if you know how many cattle you've got, then you might know how many kilos of beef you've got. Or if you don't get yourself a wow and start weighing your cattle and then you know how many kilos of beef you've got. And if you look at satellite imagery, you can work out, um, not necessarily how much grass you've got, but you can look at changes in trend and you can see whether you are gaining grass or losing grass and through making management changes based on what the information is telling you uh, generally ahead of time because the satellites and the walkover weighing units will tell you what's happening before you can actually see it for yourself it'll give you a a week or two weeks or a month jump when you can pull the trigger on things because the data is telling you to do it you can be proactive rather than uh rather than the sort of the traditional reactive manager i know there's i've had conversations with people who think that this you know technology is good and there's a place for it but there's some concern that it's replacing that it's going to replace like on the ground actual skills and you know people are going to be so you know looking at their satellite imagery so much that they won't be able to go out and identify their plants or or see changes in their landscape i think something i suppose um from my perspective is that it's not like a replacement but it's a like a symbiotic, is that the word I want to know? Or like Maybe. a, it, it, like, like it a, helps. Um, it supplements. It's- yeah, that's the word I'm going for. Yeah, that they kind of, you know, work together, uh, and helps with. But another really interesting aspect that I only learned about in the last couple of years is that this data, while some people are, oh no, I don't need satellite imagery. Like I can manage my, my feed base just fine and, and know how much grass is out there and see changes in my landscape. But it's actually, um, this kind of data can be used to the, like given to the bank. And to people like to your creditors. Exactly right. Yep. And I find that really interesting that, um, I've had examples where people who develop these technologies have, have shown how their clients have 
given this to their bank and said, this is how much more, like, this is why you should give me this much extra money so I can develop this country because this is the grass I've got out there. This is um, quantifiable and this is why I need to put in more water so I can run more cattle. Or you could be like, hey, this is my data to show you this is how many kilos of beef I've got in my property right now. This is the value of them. Can I have some more? You no, know? You're, you're exactly right. And, you know, gone are the days of thumping the table and telling the bank manager that you want more money because you want more money. They need to be accountable for their actions to the banks and the bank managers. And so they want some kind of proof that the business to which they are going to lend money is going to achieve the goals that have been established. And by showing the data, you're at least indicating that there's nothing to hide. But I suppose secondly, you're foolish if you think the banks aren't already building their own models that rely on satellite imagery, for example, or that uh, that don't check Australia's national herd numbers or consider how many animals are killed each week or month. Uh, they are fairly sophisticated organisations that have all sorts of legal requirements to be sensible and transparent and tolerate only so much risk. And in order to get what you want out of them, you've got to give them what they need. And what they need is information. I suppose it's important to say that um, you're not just saying this as somebody who's had no skin in the game. You've had cattle in the past, uh, which again, I find fascinating. So you and your cousin Sam kind of went into business and bought your own cattle well, I don't know. Uh, at the end of 2015, I think it was. Yeah. So that must have been like, again, a pretty big journey to go from some sailing boy in Sydney to <laughs> cattle owner, cattle, to cattle, cattle owner. Baron. Yeah, cattle to cattle baron, baron in, in central Australia. What was that experience like? And did you, for the years that you had your cattle, uh, did you get to have this experience of having to go and ask the bank for money and provide data or anything like that? Or was that kind oh, of a bit? Oh, man, it was what a time. Um, yeah, I was uh, working as a ringer and ringers don't get paid much. And Sam was working as a helicopter pilot when he wasn't being a ringer and wasn't being paid much. And we, we wanted to capitalise on opportunities. We wanted to put into practice the things that we'd learnt and were learning for our own benefit, not for somebody else. And the most amazing circumstances came where the property next door to us, Coniston, had a paddock available for adjustment and there were some cattle being sold by a fellow not that far away and he gave us very generous terms on the cattle and a good price and we got the cattle delivered to the paddock next door where it, you know it's an probably an hour and a half drive out to go and check on them but it's a lot better than driving a lot further or interstate or something like that the the cattle got unloaded and it rained that night and the market just started going up and up and up and up. It, it just couldn't have been better. The paddock that we had adjusted had a couple of creeks that went through it and we got a bootload of rain and it was just 
the best way to get started. That's not to say that the the loans didn't keep me up at night worrying. Um, and same deal for Sam. You know, we had a fair bit of sweat, but debt makes you sweat, and it's it's good to good to be reminded that you're alive. <laughs> uh, and yeah, look, we we worked hard in our day jobs, and then we'd go and check on our cattle at night or on Sunday, or get up super early in the morning so we'd be back in time to work or finish finish work and then head out to go and do our own thing. And um, we were – there was a bit of flexibility offered to us, um, in particular from Roy. So who, Sam, Sam's, Sam's dad. dad who, who I don't know if he didn't mind that things got permanently borrowed, but um, <laughs> he certainly didn't kick up too much of a fuss. And so we're, uh, we're very lucky to have, to have had that. But other people in the district were also very good to us who came and helped when we asked for it or offered their advice or provided their services um, for for cheap, if not for free. And, yeah, we, we rode a, a great wave of positive sentiment and we're, we're very lucky for that to have happened. Um, and, yeah, look, I, I learnt a few things the hard way. <laughs> Uh, and that's okay. Uh, I had, I was often in the way because when we would muster in, in the, in the early days at any rate, it was Sam in the helicopter and me on the ground. And we didn't have a motorbike. <laughs> we just had a one ute. And yeah, look, I was, I was in the way more often than not in the wrong spot or too slow to respond or whatever the case may be. But, um, Whatever it was that went down, we'd grin at the end of it. And, um, it was, yeah, it was a wild time. I'd do it again in a heartbeat. Sam ended up going overseas on his, on his motorbike journey, a little bit like Che Guevara rode a motorbike around South America. Uh, and in fact, he started off at the very, very bottom of South America and drove up to the top of Alaska. It took him a long time and he, uh, he wrote a, a very funny set of blogs on that. I recommend you look them up. Um, yeah, Sam's blog is wayofftrack.com.au. And yeah, <laughs> it's a great recount of the journey that he had with Mick Corcoran and Eusty Hill. And yeah, while Sam was doing that, I was holding the fort back home. Uh, anyhow, the, uh, the people at Coniston, gave plenty of notice and said we'd like our paddock back please so we sold the cattle that remained and everything worked out beautifully did that give you the bug to want to have cattle again in the future absolutely yeah what's the best part about owning cattle i've always like oh, thought i might do it but you know <laughs> i don't know um that's a, a tricky question to answer uh, there's obviously a it, it it's fun when there's risk, it's fun making a profit. It's fun working cattle. Um, it's hard to quantify what the what the best thing is. Having a go, I think, is more fun than anything else. As ScoMo likes to tell people at the moment, if you have a go, you get a go. I think that rings true a little bit. 
people in society are often um, much more interested in watching somebody make a go of something even if they um, fall flat on their face. But you can't hit a six without taking a swing. So Fair point. Now, since then, you've had a couple of jobs in industry and to this day, so you're still very involved in the cattle industry but not out on the station. What's that been like for you? Uh, yeah, it's oh, interesting, a, a word I use far too much. I worked for the NT Cattlemen's Association for 18 months. They're the, the peak industry body representing beef producers in the NT. And that was about lobbying government or universities or researchers or Meat and Livestock Australia, being a conduit between all the groups and the pastoralists. And now I work for the Northern Territory Government doing agribusiness development. So once again, I'm on another side of another fence, having been a cattle producer and then sort of a, a, an industry advocate and now an agriculture ag- advocate. So I've, I've, I've been in all the camps. Do you see a future back on the land? Do you think that's achievable in this day and age or is um, like young people buying back into stations? Is that kind of a pipe dream? Oh, look, it's a pipe dream. I'd love to do it. But with the way prices are going, I think it's somewhat unachievable. Never say never. But I think it, you know, it's, it's changed so much in the 10 years, call it, that I've been dropping in and out of the NT. It's just, it's a different game to what it was then, which was no doubt different to 10 years before that. And I don't think it's realistic to expect I'll be a, a landholder of anything other than a, a house block in town, <laughs> unfortunately. You've had quite the journey so far and I, I think it'll be interesting to like have a chat in another 10 years and see where you're at and what's been happening. But looking back on your journey so far, what would you say is the major takeaway lesson that you've learned? Cheap is expensive. Yeah, you can buy you can buy something cheap because you think it's going to do the job. You can buy – are you allowed to mention brands on your podcast, Steph? Can I say Great Wall? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, we don't have any uh, motor car companies that are sponsoring <laughs> yeah. us, so if someone other than Great Wall is interested in sponsoring, jump on in. Um, you can buy a Great Wall ute because you think that spending – Twenty thousand dollars on a on a on a car with a tray that runs on diesel is going to do you a favour, but when it spends half its life in the workshop and um, and breaks at every opportunity and and costs you money in parts and time and effort, you're better off having bought a Land Cruiser, or if you want to buy a a toaster from Kmart because it's nine dollars you'll get a few weeks' worth of use out of it and then you'll have to go back to Kmart to buy another toaster for $9 instead of just getting a $100 toaster that'll last you for five years. Um, the other cheap is expensive sort of thing is getting unqualified people to do a job that requires someone with skill or qualifications. It, cheap is expensive 
when it comes to products and services too. If you if you are flat out chasing a good deal or the best deal or the sharpest price, you're possibly going to miss out on the quality that you require. The job might have to be done twice or three times or the service might have to then be provided a second time but by another supplier because the first person didn't do the job because they were too cheap or the 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 dream was too good it didn't turn out to be reality at all if that makes any sense it does and with those wise words i can confirm that red dot or mad harry's or any of the discount stores will never sponsor this podcast now <laughs> thank you so much for your time james that's all right i promise i'm not a uh I'm not always a condescending, boring prick from an ivory tower, <laughs> which is probably how the whole thing sounded. <laughs> Charles Darwin University's Agricultural and Rural Operations team focuses on North Australian production and business systems, offering current real-world knowledge and experience by delivering both full qualifications and industry-required short courses. Courses at the rural campus are designed to develop the skills required for work on a North Australian beef cattle property or in the top-end agricultural industry, while providing a sound knowledge base in the pastoral and or agricultural industries. They have dedicated staff who specialise in workplace training and assessment and recognition of prior learning. They will come to you and they service some of the most remote areas in the Northern Territory. Find out more at cdu.edu.au. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or leave us a review. It really helps other people find our podcast. You can find our website at centralstation.net.au where we have over 1,200 stories published from across Northern Australia. All of our podcast episodes, a tourism directory for visiting an outback cattle station, and training and employment resources. We're on Facebook at Central Station, True Stories from Outback Australian Cattle Stations. And we're on Instagram at centralstation.net.au. And we're also on Twitter at Central Station 6. To discuss this episode with other listeners, head on over to our Facebook group, Central Station Podcast.